people are are really, really hoping for certainty about some things. And I think the biggest struggle that we face is everyone's uncomfortableness with uncertainty. I think if you get comfortable with uncertainty, you end up being much more fearless. Welcome to Parallax by Anka Kalra, a podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology and the best from the US Cardiology Review. Published every second Monday, Anka Kalra, MD, interventional cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, USA, speaks with legendary cardiologists, reviews late-breaking trials, and interviews authors of our latest and best US cardiology review articles. We call them hashtag audio articles. Parallax is the effect whereby the position or direction of an object appears to differ when viewed from different positions. So this podcast is your fix of reliable uptakes on all things cardiology by someone from a non-traditional background who is always looking at the industry from a new angle. Now, here's your host, Anka Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Um, welcome to another episode of Parallax. This one is particularly very, very, very special for me. And the reason it's that special for me is because the guest on, on today's show um, is my former attending. And, you know, thanks to him and thanks to his generosity, I know how busy he is that he still, you know, finds time for me. And uh, he's always been able to connect to me whenever I've tried to reach out to him. Um, so he's been extremely, extremely kind and generous to me. So, you know, without much further ado, I'm going to introduce him formally. Um, I have on the show today, Dr. Mike Gibson. Um, Dr. Mike Gibson is professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. He's an interventional cardiologist at my alma mater, uh, Bethesda Deaconess Medical Center in, in Boston, Massachusetts. And he's the chief executive officer of BAME and Profuse Research Institutes. Dr. Gibson, welcome on the show. If, 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 if we were doing this in person, I'd probably give you a hug. Uh, and, you know, thanks. Thanks again for your time. And and for being on the show with us today, I'm sure we're going to learn a lot from you. Well, a big uh, virtual hug to you, Ankar. Thank you. So, um, you know, you've, uh, I mean, I obviously, uh, you know, before even I, I was at BI Deaconess, and this was in 2015, I, uh, you know, I, I'm sure every cardiologist would know of your, you know, just incredible body of work uh, that you've done to advance the field forward. Um, but, you know, what really struck me was how, um, how balanced you were, you know, when it came to, you know, spending time with us or spending time in in the research laboratories that you 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 run several clinical trials, um, you know, and a lot of them have been New England Journal of Medicine papers. Uh, you know, that's the pinnacle for us, uh, or perhaps for anyone in, in science and medicine. And um, then, you know, you, you're you're in an incredible family man, so just it's an incredible father to your kids and. You know, I've, I've, I, we were friends on several social media accounts and I've, I've just, um, you, you know, relished how much you celebrate your kids, you know, which is, is so good to see, you know, quite frankly, um, you, you know, for someone like me, who's at the early stages of being a father of, of two boys. And, and then, you know, but, but besides that, you know, you have, uh, you, you paint and, you know, these are not, uh, you know, paintings. I mean, you, you know, one could auction these paintings. I mean, these, these, these paintings are so good. 
Um, so you're, you're, you're obviously multi-talented and you're a man of many talents. How do you balance all these acts and do them all so perfectly? What's, what's the mantra? What's the secret? Well, you know, some people have to work out uh, in order to feel good and um, start their day. I, I wish I could say I like to paint. I do like to paint. Not only do I like to paint, I feel compelled to paint. I think if you're an artist, you're a bit like one of those runners who gets a runner's high. You know, you get a dopamine high perhaps from creating your heart. But I guess I would say it's the best way that I found uh, to combat burnout. I think if I wasn't well-balanced, and when I'm not well-balanced, I will say, because I get into ruts like all of us where I'm not well-balanced, I get tired more easily. Uh, I think you have to have something that you really love to look forward to, you know, uh, something to be excited about outside of uh, the workplace. Um, and that's, for me, painting. Uh, it used to be photography, but now it's uh, it's uh, obviously painting. I paint a good chunk of my nights, a lot of my weekends. It is how I recharge. Uh, it's something that uh, people, my family can sit around in the room and kind of read and watch and we talk. Um, in the summers, I sit out by the pool and uh, friends come over. They all drink um, and sit behind me and watch me paint. I listen and I turn around now and then and talk to them. So while it's often thought to be a solitary kind of process, for me, I like to do it surrounded by friends and family, and they like it. They like watching and they like commenting and uh, making suggestions. So in some ways, it's more of a family activity, a group activity. So, but it, it really is the thing at this point in my life, I'm older than you. Um, it is the thing that I get the most joy out of other than my kids uh, at this point in my life. Yeah. So, you know, just incredible answer. And, you know, before I get to how you found painting as a passion, which you have, you know, pursued relentlessly, uh, my let's, let's just, um, you know, rewind and, and, you know, take us through um, your formative years and, you know, your years growing up um, and, you know, what inspired you to pursue a, a career in medicine? Um, how did cardiology happen? I, I know you've worked very closely with Dr. Eugene Braunwald. I mean, everyone in the field of cardiovascular medicine knows about Dr. Braunwald. Um, and then, you know, you're um, just, I mean, you've, you've sort of been, uh, been at Harvard ever since, but, uh, you know, the audience would really like to learn more about how you know, Mike Gibson became the Mike Gibson we know, know of today. Uh, and then I would like to, you know, probably explore, uh, you know, the, the different parts that I, that I find or that I discover myself, you know, parts of you that I, I do, do not know or have not known, you know, would be, would form an interesting conversation, but you know, I'll, I'll have you answer that question for us first. Sure. Well, I came from a place that's about as far removed from Boston and Harvard Medical School as you could get. I was born in Oklahoma, and I spent a fair chunk of time uh, as in my very formative years in a place called Stillwell, Oklahoma. And Stillwell, 
uh, was recently in the news as the small town or the the worst town in the United States in terms of life expectancy with a life expectancy of 56 to 57 years. And, you know, I have to say, when I was growing up there, I thought Stillwell was the greatest place on earth. Um, I had a great life. You know, I was with my grandparents a lot. They had a farm. Uh, they also ran an auto repair store. And life was so different then. You know, I'd get up in the morning. I'd uh, get in the truck and ride to work in the back of the truck. Uh, you couldn't imagine that now. I'd hang out in the auto repair store when it was time for me to take a nap. They would put me um, in the car, in a car that they put up on the racks to work underneath it. So that was the idea of babysitting back in uh, the uh, early 1960s. Uh, every day I'd go up the street to get a, a chili dog with my grandma at the Rexall drugstore. Um, she kept me busy uh, learning to count and doing math. She was a, she was a, actually quite a mathematician. She got her master's in math uh, at the University of Arkansas. Very rare for a woman back in the, gosh, I would say 30s or 40s. Uh, very, very rare for a woman or late 20s to, to become a math major or master's degree. I think one of my most prized possessions, she left, she left me just a little box. And in that box was a proof of how to trisect an angle. And of course it was wrong. You can't trisect an angle, but I was always very thrilled that my grandma was always trying to do things like, like uh, those kinds of mathematical proofs. But here in the middle of nowhere, this woman, um, you know, taught me numeracy, taught me all she could about math. Um, and she still at the age of 84, was running that auto repair store all by herself, single-handed, a very tough woman from Oklahoma, but very loving. And uh, as was my grandfather at night, we would go home. Uh, again, I'd ride home in the back of the pickup truck. I would go out, feed the cows. Uh, and, um, you know, after that, there might be some time to, they had a pool, I guess you'd call it a pool. It was really more of a, a cement hole in the ground where there were turtles, frogs, snakes, fish we caught, um, all kinds of things. I remember catching all the tadpoles and putting them in a tub and, and watching them all grow up. But it's not like a modern pool. It really was more like a pond. And they would sit there and uh, read the newspaper, and I would um, go in the pond, or I guess you'd call it a pool. And the nights were simple, you know, uh, with them and my parents. We would sit around, um, watch the Ed Sullivan show. It was a very simple time. Um, but what I was struck by, there was a large Indian population there. There still is a large Indian population there. And as much uh, as my grandmother tried to teach me, um, there was really not a lot of access to uh, printed information. Um, she gave me a nickel one day and said, why don't you go up to the book fair and buy yourself a book? And all I could really get was, as I always tell in my TEDx talk, was the letter C from 1927. And that was my internet. You know, I just looked through that encyclopedia so much because I was really hungry for knowledge, but really didn't have a lot of access uh, my father was traveling a lot. He worked for Sinclair Oil. My mom uh, was an artist uh, and a painter. 
and obviously that influenced me. My grandmother, my grandmother also loved interior design, um, art. Was always pulling me around, taking me everywhere to um, to to go to different fabric stores, and you know, she really loved uh, interior decorating. So. I was exhausted by it all. She had more energy than any person I knew. And she was also a um, seamstress and made quilts. That was her kind of artistic endeavor. But between her and my mother, I really got a boatload of um, of kind of artistic kind of uh, upbringing when I was young. I wasn't much of a painter. My mom would, uh, you know, coach me to paint and... Um, you know, I think I remember starting off painting clouds because those were easy, she said. And she said, you know, look up in the sky and, you know, once you paint a cloud like you're doing now, you'll never look at a cloud the same way again. And that was very true. If you paint something, you really become a keen observer. And I do think that is how art kind of interdigitated or informed my scientific career. For instance, um, I believe it or not, uh, I actually painted angiograms, and it was a way that I got to be a more keen observer of angiograms. And one of the things I noticed was, yeah, there's the dye in the artery, but then there's this dye at the end of the rundown in the heart muscle, and it was different than the ribs and the lung. And that was my first kind of real staring at the myocardium, um, and that's to be honest, that's how I kind of came up with the blush. The blush is that cloud, that cloud of dye uh, in the heart muscle. And once I painted it, like my mother said, I, I never really looked at an angiogram the same again. So I do think art does inform you as a scientist. I think, and I've said it many times on Twitter, I think you have to be a data collector and you have to look at raw data to really get an organic feeling for data. I think, I think science, I think, I think art is a very different endeavor than science. Science is very reductionist, uh, breaking things down into little bits. Art is almost the opposite. It's very synthetic. It's really learning to look at the whole rather than all these little parts. Um, it's inductive. It's not deductive. Science has very, very clear lines in very, very clear yes and no answers. I think my biggest failing when I was younger as an artist was thinking that everything was was lines and that painting really was staying within the lines. And in my early artistic career, I was a photographer, and that certainly was all lines. And I'm really happy that I began to break away from that a decade or two ago by being a painter, where you really... In the way I paint, you often don't focus on staying within the lines. You really focus on blocks of color, blocks of paint, and masses of paint rather than uh, formal boundaries. And I think it kind of parallels uh, some of my development as a person, too. You know, I think when we're young, we think of the world as black and white, yes and no. But you get to be older and you realize so much of the world is gray and muddy and less distinct than you thought it was. And I, I like to think my painting has begun to see that kind of subtlety in the world around me and and really begin to 
you know, use that kind of softness of transitions and patches of this and that to convey meaning rather than some very crisp line to demarcate things. And I think the older you get, the more porous you get and the more, uh, the, the less you are at boundaries and more inclusive you are. Yeah, you know what a what an artistic poetic answer. I, I'm, I'm I was you know I'm extremely fascinated by by the answer that you've given, and you know only you can give that answer. And it's actually a good segue for because as as you were speaking, I, I was formulating this next question, which I'm going to ask you, and, and that is, uh, I mean, you're you're the perfect blend of an of an artist and and a scientist. I mean, you know, a scientist to the cadre that you've published several New England Journal of Medicine papers and. You know, what you mentioned was that, you know, science is deductive and art is inductive. And there's a lot of gray, um, you know, which there is in, in, in real life and, and the world. And, you know, I think as as a clinical investigator, a par, par excellence and, you know, having run multiple clinical trials, you know, we try to be as black and white as, as we may, you know, through the construct of a randomized clinical trial. To, uh, to, to arrive at, at, an, at a conclusion or at an answer which, you know, we think can dichotomize uh, patients into, you know, one group versus the other. But then there is real world and, you know, patients have their own complexities and, you know, patients don't come in with an inclusion and exclusion criteria like, like uh, you know, that of a randomized clinical trial. Has uh, your development in, uh, or artistic, you know, instinct or influence or you know, just a, just a practice of art the way you do, has that influenced your clinical decision-making as, as a practicing cardiologist, you know, because you, you know, you have that, you, you fit, you fit in the roles of a scientist and, and an artist, like I said, and then you're also a practitioner. How, how has, how, how has art and the understanding of gray influenced your decision-making, you know, in the cath lab or when you're seeing patients? Yeah, I think, you know, what's interesting is when I was younger, I got very frustrated by having to pay some CRO $40,000 to help get the data for one of my first papers. And I made a commitment to learning how to analyze all the data myself and uh, really, uh, you know, became quite a good statistician with a lot of help from some of the school people at the School of Public Health. And back then, I was I was very black and white and uh, things had yes, no answers and, you know, multivariate models had... Um, you know, showed certainly that a lot of different things influenced uh, the outcome. So I began to grasp that life is multivariate. But I think as I grew further, I began to realize that a lot of these things are collinear in the multivariate model. So, you know, when you talk about, um, let's talk about kidney function. Well, kidney function, hmm, that's not just the kidney, that's also age. You know, if you just look at everything inside creatinine clearance, age, gender, race, uh, the kidney function. But what you see is that all these four things kind of run together. And I remember one paper I wrote where I called it a multivariate map. When you look at the amount of blockage uh, or the blood flow, rather, after a thrombolytic, well, you can make a map. And I did make this chart, which shows some of it's percent stenosis, 
but persistent stenosis is also related to um, the amount of time that it took for that person to get to the hospital. It's related to, um, you know, which artery it was, the right having more clot. It's related to how long it took for the person to get to the cath lab. The quicker the trip, uh, maybe the more clot where the drug hadn't worked. It's, um, you know, related to the perfusion downstream. It's related to the amount of vessel distal to that blockage because when you open up the artery, it's not the blockage that's dictating blood flow. It is actually microvascular perfusion downstream. So big heart attacks cause slow blood flow, not slow blood flow causing big heart attacks. It's a little bit of a circular issue. When you look at the map, it's this blob of all these overlapping variables, time, perfusion, clot, you know, all these things are related to each other as well as to blood flow. So life really is multivariate. It really is unbelievably complex. And, you know, I think what I've grown to learn more about as I got older is interaction terms. How does, how does age modulate the outcome? Well, that's a first order interaction term, but then there's a second order interaction term. How does gender interact with age, which interacts with treatment term? And then how does race interact with gender, which interacts with age? So in other words, Everything is related to everything else. And you begin to realize that it's so complicated and uh, uh, there are no black and white real answers. It's all very gray. Even when you do a trial, you've picked out one part of the universe to look at. And you have to be very careful that you don't apply it to everything else. Uh, but life really is gray and you have to really look at all those relationships and collinearity colliders all that that's become more um, heightened in my mind i guess the older i get of just how complicated all it is i'm at that part of the that uh that line of you think you know everything and then you realize you really don't know a whole lot i'm kind of down at the bottom of that trying to make my way out yeah and you know it's 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 amazing right the evolution of um you know, us when we, you know, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll talk, talking based on my experience as well, you know, just going through medical school and, you know, trying to memorize knowledge and, you know, making sure that you, you know, try and have a grasp of, you know, every disease condition, every organ and every pathological condition that may perhaps affect that organ. And as you then graduate from medical school and start residency, you start to realize how much of it that how much of it is that we actually really do not know. And then you 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 go through fellowship and you try to pick up an organ of interest and try to master it to the best that you can, only to realize that what you were taught was was actually wrong. So you know, as as an investigator, how important you think is for practicing clinicians to be open-minded, have a curious mind, um, and, you know, also have self-inquiry as, uh, as practice and how, and, and, you know, how to take feedback and criticism in, in a positive way, because, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's, you know, people obviously are, are very smart and well-read, you know, in, in cardiovascular medicine uh, as I've experienced and, 
uh, you know, there's so much new information that is new knowledge that gets generated and comes out. And there's, there's so much to garner, you know, I, I mean, you're at the meetings, you, you interview all the, uh, you know, um, all the practice changing scientists that, that contribute to our field. Um, how do you, how do you assimilate all the data and all the information? Uh, you know, you mentioned that it's important to look at, it's important to be a data collector and look at raw data yourself, um, you know, to sort of figure things out. Uh, so how, how do you, how do you practically implement that in your daily practice? Well, I think it's a really tough thing. Um, very, very hard. And I've grown to the years, uh, when I was a young person, I, uh, I, like most interventional cardiologists, valued certainty and confidence. You know, I think when you look at young operators, uh, they're so confident and certain that they're doing the right thing. Um, and, you know, there's almost, it's almost perceived as a weakness if you aren't certain about the right strategy or confident in that answer because you yourself place tremendous value on your own confidence in getting through a procedure. I think as you get older, like me, you realize that so many of the things you held, you know, near and dear to your heart is true, just didn't turn out to be true. Um, you know, for coronary blood flow, it's been a 30 year journey. And I, I still kind of, I said the other day, I find it a, a mystery wrapped in a riddle that's an enigma topped in secret sauce. It just is very, very complicated. And uh, the more I learn, the more complicated it gets. And I'm, I think for me, the biggest advance that I made was getting comfortable with a lack of certainty. And um, I think we see that in the pandemic right now. People are are really, really hoping for certainty about some things. And I think the biggest struggle that we face is everyone's uncomfortableness with uncertainty. I think if you get comfortable with uncertainty, you end up being much more fearless. And it's something that comes from within. I think you have to get very comfortable with it. And because you have a lot of people around you who are very ego-driven, very ego-driven, who really pride themselves still on certainty, uh, want to view the world as linear, black and white, and they've got the answers. And you have to be pretty comfortable with yourself to kind of quietly laugh inside and just kind of shake your head and just say that the world's not that way. But that's been a personal journey of mine, and I do think it's helpful. You know, when you talk with a patient, I think some patients want, you know, very certain answers, but I, I try and be truthful with patients that this could help you. I hope it helps you. It may not. You know, we think this is better for you. Every patient's different, but, you know, hopefully this will help you rather than black and white answers. But I guess that's been my journey. Yes, no, I, um, I understand. I mean, you're, you're coming from a beautiful place within you, within your heart of, of extremely deep understanding at, at a spiritual level. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I follow spiritual practices myself, but when I hear you, uh, you know, that's what I interpret. And it's, it's, it's beautiful for me to, to hear those words from you, you know, from, from someone who's as accomplished uh, as you are and has contributed a significant amount of, you know, data and literature and, and science, um, you know, to cardiovascular medicine. 
is is very refreshing for someone who's young in 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 a career like mine to hear. And you know there is a there is a certain amount of vulnerability you know in, in your response which which is very refreshing. You sort of uh, and you know I, I could not agree more when you said that a lot of it is ego driven, particularly in our field, right? In in the field of interventional cardiology, where you know, I mean, you've obviously got great operators, and uh, and you know, there's a there's a certain body language that is uh, that you know one has come to anticipate or you know expect from interventionalists, and you know, if you then if you then come across as a as a thoughtful, speculative, mindful, compassionate, uh, you know, spiritually driven interventionalist, mm-hmm. that may be construed. I'm I'm not saying that's that's true, but that that may be construed as um, you, you know lack of competence or incompetence, unfortunately, but, you know, like you said, you sort of have this laugh inside you, um, and, you know, sort of move on and, and try to do what's best for the patient. Would you, would you agree with that interpretation, Dr. Gibson, or, or do you think that I interpret that? Uh, no, I, I fully agree. I fully agree. And, um, you know, it is that kind of body language of alpha male certainty, uh, that people seem to compete on, and it takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of courage to take a step back and say, you know, I'm not going to compete in that way. Um, I'm going to allow myself to be vulnerable to tell people I have uncertainties about what they're saying uh, and doing. Uh, they get angered by that. Uh, you know, and I think at the end of the day, you have to be comfortable in your own mind that you really are acting in the patient's best interest rather than your ego's best interest and um, not put your desire to be um, technically, uh, you know, a wizard ahead of uh, doing what you really think is best for the patient and not competing to see who can do uh, the most interventions or the most complicated interventions or the, uh, you know, the craziest uh, thing in the cath lab. Just, just sometimes all that is not what's in the best interest of the patient. Um, put the patient's interest first. I do view medicine as a s- spiritual challenge. I personally find, you know, you will be about as good of a doctor as you feel along with your patients. On the other hand, doing that really drains you. If you're a sensitive and empath like I am, you really get very, very, very drained uh, of all your emotional energy. So you have to do a lot to try and protect your emotional energy. Um, and that kind of runs counter to what I was saying about vulnerability. But uh, I think by getting older, you you do learn to be vulnerable, but not um, not allow yourself to be drained. And I do think that's why things, for me at least, I found my my recharging in painting. Well, you have to have those activities that uh, recharge your spiritual battery. Yes, and you know. Um, so, as a follow up to that, what, what, how do you, how do you conserve your emotional energy? Because you know, I, I, I'd like to think that I, I'm, I'm compassionate and, and emotional and, and empathic. Uh, but, but like you said, it, it drains you. I mean, you know, there are cases with complications that, you know, still haunt me. Um, and you know, I, I wish I could have done things differently. And. You know, and and then you sort of end up becoming really close to the family, right, and to the patient. And um, 
but but that you know you, you sort of you sort of take those emotions with you back home also um, and uh, then you you want to be as emotionally present and available for your kids so how do you and, and you know you are you know you're you're an incredible father I, I, I don't know if I've told you that before but I am now and um, uh, so and I really really respect you for that um, respect you a lot for that you know obviously I respect you for many other things but particularly for that I respect you a lot how how did you conserve energy to be present and available for for your kids and and you still are you know on a continual basis you are looking back when I was a 30 some year old um, I was too consumed by medicine and I wish I had uh, been more available to my kids until uh, my wife, my first wife and I got separated and we co-parented and she was going to school. So I had the kids, you know, every weekend from Friday, Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, and then some on Wednesdays. So I actually had a lot of time with them and I had as a single parent, at that point, there was no one else to help. And it really actually forced me to um, be emotionally engaged uh, with my kids, my boys. And, um, you know, we, we really didn't have anything. We were living in Brighton in pretty poor conditions. We had one bed. We shared one bed, me and the boys. When I had to go in on call, they had to come with me to the hospital and you know kind of uh hang out in, in the uh in the in the in the you know protected booth or in my office and they kind of grew up with medicine i guess when my son went into medicine i was a little surprised and i tried to caution him i said you know i don't know that this is a healthy profession i think it takes so much out of you personally that um, if you, it depends on who you are. I mean, if you care and if you're empathic and if you're sensitive, it takes so much out of you personally that it can really drain you and your, your family of your emotional um, engagement. And uh, I was surprised that he made the choice to go into medicine. I guess in some ways I was pleased to see that he went into medicine to kind of kind of feel as though I hadn't damaged him you know, during my thirties. Um, but you know, whenever I traveled, I tried to integrate my kids into my travel. I always did when I would go to meetings, medical meetings, they would come with me. Uh, they flew all over the world with me. Um, so I tried to make it a life where I did involve my kids as much as possible in medicine and both of them seemed to really actually, the boys uh, during that period seemed to actually have liked it um, and seemed to really may have grown a lot from it. You know, they, they really love to travel. Both of them love, love, love to travel. They travel to crazy places. They do crazy things like be the first person to scale this mountain in India this year uh, to go to all these crazy exotic places. So they inherited my love of travel and exploration, and they also inherited my eclectic nature. So and my son commented on that in his um, wedding, his wedding speech, you know, that he felt fortunate to have been raised by uh, the most eclectic person in the most eclectic way possible. But I wish I had been, I wish, I think medicine's dangerous. It's dangerous to families. It's dangerous to marriages. It's dangerous to parenting. 
And uh, I think there should be more work done to educate people about those dangers because it can really suck you in and um, you have to be careful. Yes. You know, such a, such an informed answer, right? Like such a, such a well-rounded, informed, experienced answer from, from someone who's coming from, from an honest, deep and spiritual place in his heart. I I couldn't thank you more uh, for this. So let me, let me ask you a few questions. You know, I've, I've always wanted to sort of ask these questions to you, but you know, we sort of, we, we met each other last year at TCT and, you know, you, you're obviously have a lot of commitments and, and are, are busy. Um, but how, how enjoyable is, uh, going to, you know, various med- medical meetings for you, how enjoyable it is, you know, at, at even at this stage in, in your, in your career and life. And, um, I mean, I, I know you do a stellar job interviewing, you know, all the all the late breaking presenters and and you know uh, other um, you know investigators who have presented you, you know abstracts which which you perceive may change the course of how we practice cardiology and, and medicine. Um, how is how is that experience for you? Like ha- after having done this for you know years and years and years, I love doing what I do. I have to say, I. I get kind of drained, you know, interviewing, I don't know, 20 people a day, maybe doing 60 interviews at a meeting. It's very exciting. But, you know, you talk about that energy. Um, it is kind of emotionally draining. You know, I get kind of excited by it all. And that excitement kind of drains my battery. Um, that's fun and good. But, you know, what I really thrive on is the private time, the private time that I have with um old friends uh, who I love very much and just the quiet times with them one-on-one away from, you know, the public. And, um, you know, it's great to see old friends at the meetings, you know, even people in Boston, I don't even see them when I'm in Boston, but I see them at the meetings. So I think the meetings really have two important you know, contributions. One is science. But for me, an equal, if not greater contribution is uh, those personal relationships, which I I really, really, um, I thrive on and love. Yeah. And then um, as a a follow up to that, um, you know, so Boston is is my favorite city, has been my favorite city for, for, for a long time. And you've, you've lived in Boston now for how long, Dr. Gibson? Gosh, on and off since 86. So what's that? 34 years now, but three years out at UCSF. So 31 years here. Yeah. So I'm, I mean, I'm sure you've, you've really enjoyed your, your time at, at Harvard. Um, I mean, I was, I was there for a limited time, but tell us about uh, life as professor of medicine at arguably the best medical school in the world. Um, what do you want people to learn and, and take away? Because, you know, we're obviously downloaded in many countries. And even in the U.S., a lot of people aspire to be at some stage in their lives of, of medical training, which is long. Uh, they, they do want to be at, uh, you know, Harvard Medical School hospitals. Um, what, what would you have to share with them? And, you know, what about uh, Boston and, and Harvard Medical School still enthralls you? Yeah, boy, that's a tough question. Um you know, I think for my medical life, it's great to be immersed in a culture. It's all about culture. It's all about who you run into in the hallways. Um, 
that really is actually, I think, so so cool. Um, you know, we have CAF conference as an example. And, you know, during the CAF conference, you would have myself, Bobby Yeh, uh, Tilly Left, Jeff Popma, uh, Dwayne Pinto. You know, you have a lot of world's experts just all kind of talking about cases. And um, it's hard to reproduce that. You know, you can be the smartest guy in the room, but if you're the smartest guy in the room, you're probably in the wrong room. Um, you need to find a room where you grow and you learn. And by the way, the tribe, the tribe is always smarter than the one individual. And this is a pretty sharp tribe. So, uh, you know, it's, you're also only as good of a tennis player as the person you're practicing with and playing across from. It makes you keep your game up and uh, is is quite good. Now, the downside is it's a very, very, very competitive environment, very much an environment of what have you done for me lately? And if the money dries up, the funding dries up, you know, well, then you may need to move on. Uh, so it's a tough environment to be in. But I would also like to say that even though you get that kind of stimulation from being here, I also find some of the best times I have and some of the best meetings I have is when I go around the country and, and go to different meetings where you have a lot of different experts from a lot of different parts of the country. And that's uh, equally, if not more engaging, because you have even more variety of opinions. Uh, Boston is not the epicenter of art. And if it was left up to me, I would probably be living, if I could live anywhere, I'd probably be living, you know, in Santa Fe or in in Laguna Beach or in, uh, you know, Northern California somewhere telecommuting. I wouldn't say it is the greatest spot for me as an artist, but I think for medical culture, it's quite good. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, well, if you run into them again on on a Wednesday morning cath conference, you know, please give my regards to all of them. I, I have them in in deep in deep regard, and I, I sort of try to communicate that through social media, through Twitter. But you know, having you know to to just have that non nonverbal communication of, of deference and and you know really um, you know camaraderie is, is something that I also miss about the meetings and. Yeah. Well, um, any closing remarks, Dr. Gibson? This is this has been a fascinating conversation. So thank you for making the time. Any closing remarks for for young early career interventionists or early career cardiologists or, you know, just people in, in residency and fellowship? You know, those those happen to be our audience for the most part. Yeah. You know, I think it's uh, a little like the electronic medical record, you know, you shouldn't be working for the electronic medical record. The electronic medical record should be working for you. You could work some for medicine, but, you know, medicine has to be working for you as a human. And don't let medicine consume you. Don't let medicine chew you up and spit you out. Don't let your hospital chew you up and spit you out. You do have more alternatives than you think. You do have more value than you think. Uh, don't ever, ever put your family second. Put your family first. Um, you know, when the chips are down, it's only your family who will be with you, not a lot of these other people. And uh, learn to take care of yourself. 
because if you don't take care of yourself, you're not going to be able to take care of other people. And most of all, learn to love one another. You know, love is the most powerful force in the world. Um, just chill out, love people. Don't fight so hard. Don't be so angry. Great, great closing remarks. Uh, thanks again, Dr. Gibson. It was just an amazing, amazing podcast. Thank you again for your wisdom, for your honesty, transparency, and vulnerability. I truly, truly enjoyed it. Thanks again. All right, man. Good talking. Yeah, likewise. Bye-bye. Bye. Dear cardiologists, we want to make this podcast about you and for you. So please email us your critical thoughts, comments and questions at podcast at radcliffe-group.com and visit uscjournal.com for more information. You can also follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram at Radcliffe Cardiology for daily updates. Join thousands of cardiologists and become a Radcliffian by registering to radcliffecardiology.com. You will receive regular newsletters and gain access to hundreds of expert interviews, educational webinars, clinical cases, and peer-reviewed articles from our six medical review journals on general cardiology, interventional cardiology, arrhythmia and electrophysiology, cardiac failure, and vascular and endovascular surgery. Thank you.